Good morning, everybody. Great to have you with us. Welcome to church. Welcome to Trinity. My name is Ashley Matthews. I'm the education pastor here on the west side. Thrilled to get to be with you all in Matthew's gospel this morning. If you have Bibles, you can turn to Matthew chapter 11. And I'll just say, uh, piggybacking on what Jason was saying about formation groups and several people who are closest to me in the world have um, done these groups and getting to like watch it change people's lives uh, right in front of me, which has, um, I think, been, a, for me, a real testament to what Jason was saying, just the gift in, of the Spirit in, at work in this curriculum, and I think, maybe most importantly, in the idea of us, like, just deciding that we need to be with other Christians to talk about our lives and pray for each other, and um, in, like, a really small uh, group, and that um, oftentimes, we think we need a mentor to do that, someone, you know, who's, like, five to ten years older than me and has walked a little, and none of us feel like we are mentors. That's sort of the problem, you know. There's always a shortage of mentors. And uh, these groups have been so brilliantly, I think, designed to help us see um, that maybe we have more to offer each other than we think we do. And there's a real gift uh, in that. So if you are in, in a space where you feel like you might need something like that, I commend them to you. We're going to read Matthew's Gospel, 11, chapter 11. We'll start in verse 2, and we'll pray. Matthew writes... When John, John the Baptist, heard in prison what the Messiah was doing, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come? Or are we to wait for another? Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, And the poor have good news brought to them. And blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to look at? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? Someone dressed in soft robes? Look, those who wear soft robes are in royal palaces. What then did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I tell you, among those born of women, no one has arisen greater than John the Baptist, yet the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Lord, we are thankful. It is a gift to have your word with us is a gift to be here, Lord, in the, in the church. Thank you, God, for the gift of Advent also, just like holy time and space. I pray now, Holy Spirit, that you would help us uh, settle in into a place of peace and openness to your word. In particular, Lord, to those of us, I suspect many of us in this room who are feeling, when we think about Advent or even about you, Lord, we feel mostly what we're not doing, all the not enough that we feel for the people around us or for you. And I ask you, Lord, Holy Spirit, will you go and lay hands of of peace over us in a way that would reassure us, Lord, that you are here, that you see and you know, and um, your heart, Lord, towards us is one of hope 
to stir up joy and rejoicing in us, to call us, Lord, to lift up our eyes and look out and over, God, what is not enough into who you are and what is. So will you come, Lord? Bring your peace with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Third week of Advent. It is, um, as Jason said, hard to believe. I've already talked to handfuls of people already this morning that say, always say the same thing. It goes by so fast. Are we here already? And it's true. We all feel it. Um, I love this week of Advent, though, in particular. Um, the symbolism of this week is really, I think, especially powerful. I'd like to talk about it for a minute before we jump into the text. Uh, this is the week when, in churches all over the world, and maybe even in your own homes, I hope, if you have an Advent wreath, you're lighting the, um, the pink candle, we call it. It's the rose-colored candle of the Advent wreath. And the, um, the idea is that this is the week when the church calls us in the Advent season to uh, rejoice, to brighten our spirits. And so um, the candle, the color of the candle brightens as a reminder that this is the week when we rejoice, Gaudete in, in Latin. So churches all over the world are meant to be uh, rejoicing. And it would be tempting to think, well, that's because there's only one candle left and we're so much closer to Christmas. Like that's the reason that we rejoice. And I will tell you, um, that is for sure what my four-year-old son thinks. Um, We have been (laughs) lighting the candles, counting down the Christmas, you know, every week. And so he's just thrilled there's only one left. And I, that being said, however, I've sort of felt prompted by the spirit this week as I've been thinking about that. Um, to be reminded that actually, though, when we think about Advent, um, it's important to remember that we're actually uh, not meant to be thinking of this season as something that we're like journeying towards, that we're the ones sort of moving through time on our way to something. When we talk about Advent as a coming, um, the idea is that God is the one who's coming and that we are therefore the ones who are waiting Actually, Advent, and this is what's so hard, I think especially maybe for for some of us, maybe even for us as Americans, um, Advent is distinct in this respect. You're not meant to do anything during Advent except wait, and sometimes that's absolutely actually the hardest thing to do. And the whole point, actually, of this Advent season is to say, you're not on your way maybe anywhere. (laughs) What if you just had to stay right there and wait for God to come to you? And that's not just true of this season. The genius of the church calendar is to help us acknowledge that that will be true for me in a season of my life, that I will run into something where I can't do anything to fix it or change it or make it different, and I will have to wait for God to do something beyond what I'm able to do. And that in that waiting, there will come a point where I will begin to feel the weight of the waiting. I will want it to be over. And probably right in the thick of it, you know, right about here, midway point, you know, but you don't know it's midway. That's the whole idea. You don't know how much you can't. There's no end in sight when you're waiting for something like God or something like whatever it is maybe that you're going through. There's just going to be a particularly dark and heavy point. And at that point, your faith is going to start to falter and you might begin to lose hope. And the real genius, I think, of what the church is doing, the power of the symbol, is to say it is precisely at that point, when you begin to feel that way, that you are called to rejoice as an act of faith, as disciplined hope, like practice joy as a way of warding off the despair and the hopelessness that might otherwise set in. 
It's really brilliant. That's a different kind of rejoicing than what we do in Easter with a thing in hand, resurrection in hand. This is, this is hope against hope. This is a heavy kind of rejoicing, and I think there's a real genius in it. It's no accident that we're reading, of course, this story uh, on this Sunday because um, John the Baptist, this story that we're going to look at, we read from Matthew's Gospel, what we're seeing in that uh, text is John's moment when the waiting got really heavy and hard for him. That even for John the Baptist, there came a time when his like, faith started to falter. His vision of Jesus was less sure or less clear than it used to be. And if that was true for John, it will most certainly be true for you and for me. And the only question is not like if, but what do we do when we get there? And the church has an answer. You rejoice. Emmanuel will come to thee, O Israel. So what did that look like for John? Uh, There have been ways in which I have found this uh, text to be like really practically helpful for me. Um, And I hope to be able to share with you a couple of observations that I think will be, I hope, maybe really helpful for you. The story itself is that John is in prison. Um, That's not a surprise. If you know anything about John the Baptist, he is for sure going to prison, you know? He is just one of those people that's like, yeah, you're going to jail. Of course you are. Um, prophets, Prophets went to jail then, and they go to jail now. That's just the way it works. And so John has found himself in prison, and we don't know how long he's been there, but it's been long enough for real uncertainty to set in. Um, We might even call it doubt. We don't know exactly what he was thinking or feeling, but he felt unsure enough to reach out to Jesus and say, I need some reassurance. Um, I don't understand what's going on. And that's the really important thing to note. Um, John's uncertainty was coming because he had expectations for Jesus. Shocker. How dare he um, have expectations for God and for Jesus? Uh, Of course he did. Uh, We all do. We all have expectations. We all have things that we want uh, Jesus to be doing. And specifically, John had expectations for the Messiah, what it would look like for the Messiah to come. John had spent his whole life um, you know, mining out the scripture, praying, receiving from the spirit a vision for what it would look like when the Messiah came. Um, and he, he feels like, in short, he's not seeing it. There's a gap between what he was taught or hoped to see happen and what Jesus is doing. And there's this like space in between. And I just want to note that that really was the source of John's, I believe, disappointment, his frustration, whatever it is he was feeling, was not John feeling sorry for himself because he's in prison and Jesus hadn't come to get him yet, which is how I would have been feeling. If I were in prison, I would have been bummed because my expectation is that Jesus is coming to get me out of here. And if he takes too long in doing it, then I'm going to get bummed. I just want to say I don't believe that's what's happening for John. Uh, John was a zealot. More importantly, he was a prophet. John was not afraid of Herod. He was not afraid of prison. He wasn't afraid of dying, I don't believe. What he was afraid of is missing it, though. And because it looked to him like something, either Jesus was missing it or something's not happening, um, he was probably most concerned that Jesus hadn't found himself in prison alongside him yet. (laughs) In other words, he wasn't, he wasn't doing enough, shaking it up enough. And so he sends his disciples to Jesus to say, in short, you just going to hang out or we going to do something? And it would be really unwise to assume that that was sort of, you know, John's posture and his tone. 
that he would have that kind of provocation towards Jesus if we didn't know anything about John. Um, but the truth is we, we do know quite a lot about John. John was a provocateur. He, he provoked. That's what he did. And so he says in short to Jesus, are you the one or should we look for somebody else? What are you doing? Why isn't it happening? And here's maybe kind of like the first thing that really strikes me about that. It's almost as if Jesus anticipated that that's exactly how John would be feeling because he's not either surprised nor does he scold John via his his friends. He simply says to him in response, go and tell John what you hear and see. And then he he recounts to him this beautiful vision from Isaiah 35, which we read at the beginning of our service, and therefore three of you heard um, because we read it. right. That's right. We read the Old Testament every week around here, people. You didn't know, did you? Every week. He recounts this beautiful vision from Isaiah 35 in which he says what it will look like for the kingdom of heaven to come. Um, So here's the first observation I want to make. John had expectations of Jesus that were right and good and true. But because he was so laser-focused on the particulars of those expectations, there were things he wasn't able to see. So what that means for me and for you, I think, is we have expectations of God. Of course you do. You're meant to. He invites you to have them. That's why he gave you a Bible full of them. It is no faith at all to not expect God to do things. That requires no faith of me. Faith necessitates that I have expectations, that I have hopes, that I'm looking for God, that I'm putting myself out there enough to insist that God would meet me. The expectations are not the problem. The problem is, is when those expectations begin to be defined by my needs, by my wants, by what I think I need and I think I want or I think you need or I think you want. And then I end up looking for those things that I am like I believe I should be seeing more of and in turn end up missing other things that are happening that God is doing. I like actually can't see them happening. This was happening for John. The kingdom of heaven was advancing. The promises of Isaiah 35 were happening. He just couldn't see them. And that's because he needed like a shift, just a shift in perspective. And that's what Jesus gives to him. When John reaches out, Jesus sends back almost like if you could imagine it literally like a set of glasses. Our expectations become a lens through which we see the world, through which we see God. I expect God to be this, this, and this, and therefore that's what I'm looking for. And what Jesus says in the sum to John is he needs another set of glasses. Send him these. Tell him to put these on. And then look at what's happening. And those lenses were the Bible. Which is fascinating to think that even John the Baptist had to go to the Bible in order to see Jesus. And if that was true again for John, that will be true of me and you. It will take the word of God coming to me to be able to like see what's happening around me. And it was this beautiful gift, and it works. I mean, the beginning of Isaiah 35, the first words of that passage say this, Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong and do not fear. Your God will come. 
What a beautiful gift to have given John. Not scolding, just as like a shift in perspective. So if you feel yourself disappointed or frustrated or un, like confused by what God isn't doing, hold those expectations out in front of the Lord and say, God, help me, help me see what I'm not seeing. In what ways are you at work in my life doing things around me that I can't see? I can't let go of these expectations totally. I'm just willing to like hold my hands open though so that I can receive what you are doing. That's very faithful. I think it's what John was invited to do. Second observation I want to make related is that um, it's a harder one for me anyway and it's that um, sometimes uh, when we need him the most, it can seem like God is the furthest away. And that's just true. It's true for John. It's true for Jesus. You get to a point where, for whatever reason, um, your faith feels really unsure or uncertain, and there are a lot of things that get us into that place, and then it's like, you know, we can't get to God when we really need to. And it fosters uncertainty, doubt, fear. That space, the distance between me and where Jesus is. John was, you know, what's interesting is he'd spent most of his life away from Jesus. But when, since Jesus had come into the fullness of his ministry, there had been this closeness, this connection between the two of them. And then once that went away and John was put in prison, he literally couldn't get to Jesus and there had been extended space and distance, that distance and that space fostered insecurity, doubt, uncertainty. And that's so helpful to me because it it is true in my own life. It's true in any relationship. Too much distance creates doubt and uncertainty. And that's true for your faith, just like it would be in any of your other relationships. So if you have spent too much time, what I want to say, away from God, if it's been too long since you felt connected and close and you find yourself in turn feeling really uncertain and full of doubt, I just want to say it's not a mystery how you got there or why you feel that way anyway. You are standing in in a place that a lot of people, a lot of really faithful people have found themselves. And so if we can now turn to each other and say, you're all right, I've been there before. (laughs) There There is a way out. Just hold on. That's really helpful to hear. I went through this, um, this season, maybe the most uh, obviously in my own life, during this last pregnancy. Uh, it was a time, you know, when you should, you would imagine, feel particularly close to God. I don't know. Giving life feels like, you know, you should feel more like God creating life or be more... Sp- I've heard other people say they felt particularly attuned to the Spirit, you know, during... It was not true for me. Um, It was like, you know, ceiling on head, and there was just me in this growing belly, and that was about as deep as it got for me for a while. And you, like, why, you know? what? But the space then, not feeling like I could, for whatever reason, access Jesus just creates all this uncertainty and this doubt. And so then the question becomes, so how do I close the distance? That's when I find myself there. If I know it's distance that got me here, how do we close it? What do we do about it? How do I invite God into it? That's the question for you. What I want to say, though, related to that, secondly, is that sometimes the doubt and the uncertainty just finds us 
It's not necessarily because we've been too long away or we've created too much space or too much distance. Doubt can and does just even to the best of us happen sometimes. And here's what I want to say related to that. It's not always bad. In fact, I would submit it's most often not bad. Because doubt can be, as it was for John, a really gracious opportunity for your view of who God is to expand and grow. It can be a prompting from in your spirit that something needs to change. You need a new understanding, a new revelation of who God is in order to grow. Because you've outgrown the one you've got. Here's what I mean. An illustration would be helpful. Plants. You buy a plant little, comes in little pot. Yes? At some point, you water the plant, you take care of it. Little plant is going to become a big plant. Little pot. Big plant. And here's what I've learned the hard way. If you don't take big plant out of the little pot, it will begin to show signs of distress. And those signs, those, those signs of distress are meant to be to you an indicator that it's time to change the pot. It needs access to more soil. When the roots have shot out the bottom now and are grasping at everything into the air, it's the plant's way of saying, I would like more soil, please. It's getting cramped in here. I need more room. And I think our faith can function, operates a lot, oftentimes, exactly this way. When you first come to faith, necessarily you are given a a small vision of God, or a simplistic one, rather. That's not bad. That's right and good. Sunday school is good for everybody. Those versions of who God is are right and true. My son is four. Um, Right now, it's heaven is up and good, hell is down and bad. You know, it's like not more complicated than that for him Right now, one day we'll get to more advanced forms of cosmology and theology. But today, it's Jesus loves you, and, you know, we keep it simple. But there's going to come a point in his life, in your life, in my life, where either because I've spent too much time away from Jesus or I've run into something really hard, where I will begin to feel the limits of what that small pot has to offer me, what a small and simplistic faith has to offer me. And when I get to that point, it does not mean that I've done something wrong or that God's done something wrong. It just means it's time to reach out and grow, that I need deeper soil. And the hope of the church, our hope for each other, is that we can, when the person next to you reaches that place, you have enough of a deep and abiding faith to be able to turn to that person and say, here, let me invite you into something that's bigger, deeper than what you've known. Those questions can drive you to that place. They did for John. I think what's so instructive about what John does is when he ran into his doubt. He didn't abandon his mission or his faith or decide that Jesus was a fraud. He took his questions to Jesus, trusting that he would have the answers. I think that could be and should be really instructive for what can and should happen for us. The doubt doesn't have to rule over you. It can, in fact, serve you. 
push you to a new place. Frederick Bigner is one of my favorite um, Christian writers. And he has this to say about doubt. He says, whether your faith is that there is a God or that there is not a God, if you don't have any doubts, you're either kidding yourself or asleep. Doubts are the ants in the pants of faith. They keep it awake and moving. I think sometimes some of us think we're losing our faith when really maybe all that's happening is that we're losing a vision of Jesus we've outgrown, a vision of the Bible we've outgrown, that our world has become too complicated to sustain a small pot. And the beautiful thing about who Jesus is, I believe the Bible is, is it's up to the task. When John sent his questions to Jesus, Jesus said, you go tell John that there's more happening here than he's able to see or know and understand. So those disciples got to go and say to John, it is happening. John, it's just bigger and better than you thought. And that's what happened to me in my most like profound season of doubt. I, by God's grace, stayed long enough to hear the Lord say, it is happening. It's just so much bigger and more complicated, so much better than you thought. And that opens your eyes to a whole different vision of who Jesus is. The reason that we do Alpha here in this church, Alpha is a a space, a a course for seven weeks of inviting people to come in and sit and ask their questions about who God is and say what they think and what they're struggling is. The reason that we do it is because we believe that those questions are, in fact, catalysts for new life, whether you count yourself as a Christian or not. Doubts are a part of our faith. That's why Alpha is in this church open to anyone who has a question, anyone who's awake and moving. Because we believe that when we sit together and we acknowledge and give voice to those questions that maybe God will show up in a new way and do something we hadn't seen. I think um, the beauty of this particular week, maybe this season, the genius of it is to be able to like hear God say, this is going to like staring in the dark. It's heavy. It's hard. Trying to be a light on a hill is hard. And I'm really thankful for the acknowledgement that that's the case. And not just an acknowledgement that it's hard, but some real hope to hold on to. Because what the church is saying, what I believe Jesus is saying to me and to you, when I start to falter, when the flame feels like it's going to go out, that's when I take up the song and I can hear the Spirit sing through me, Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. I sing that song right now through this season in a different posture than I sing in Easter. Easter's hope is different. The joy is different. The hope and joy of Advent's a little heavier. You sing it through some tears and through some uncertainty and through some doubt. And that just makes it feel, I think, all the more real to me. So take up those songs as like a prayer of faith particularly now and maybe especially if you can't feel them in the way that you wish that you could. And see what God does. Take it to Jesus like John did. See what happens. Let's stand together if we're able.
Thanks so much for listening to the sermon today. My name is Chris McDaniel. I am the pastor here on the west side at Trinity in Atlanta. At Trinity, our mission is to be a people who are growing into Christ likeness. And if you want to find out more information about Trinity or get connected to the life of the church, please visit us at atltrinity.org. Thanks. God bless.